Hello and welcome. This is Dr. Bob Nations with the Department of Counseling at Wake Forest University. And you have tuned in to the Wake Forest University podcasts with our counseling department. Cheyenne Carter is with us today, too, as co-host. And Cheyenne, who do we have with us today? Hello, Bob. It's great to be here with you again today. We have um, a very special guest. One of the things that we have um, been talking about doing with this podcast is really trying to bring in lots of different voices, not just from our current um, department faculty and students, but also from our wide array of alumni. Um, and so we have a very esteemed alumni yes. colleague joining us today with um, with the Child Welfare Organization. So our guest today is Terry Thompson. She is a graduate of our um, counseling program, the Human Services Track. And um, has been in the child welfare um, field for 15 years and currently serves as a supervisor um, and a director in an administrative role. So welcome, Terry. It's great to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, Bob, one of the things that um, we've talked a lot about um, on the podcast is about wellness and mm -hmm. self-care yes. and all of these different things. And so, while Terry, I know that you could talk with us about a variety of interesting topics in your role. Um, one of the things that, that draws me to the work that you do is the high level of trauma um, that you're exposed to both with observing um, uh, trauma within the child welfare industry, but also working with professionals who are in a role where they observe um, human suffering and trauma. Um, so I thought it'd be interesting for you to kind of uh, give a little bit of an explanation of some of the work that you do, and then we might be able to talk about that a little bit. Okay. So in so in child welfare, uh, the state where I practice, we have, um, and every state's a little bit different, but we have a setup where we have a team, um, I guess we sort of specialize roles. And so we have a team of investigators that investigate the Child Protective Services cases that come in. Um, we have a team that does in-home services with families to help strengthen and preserve the families, um, reduce the risk that has been identified in their home. And we have a team that does um, foster care. And we have, you know, other regional functions as well. But within in my office, those are the three primary um, child welfare functions. Of course, it's, it's a dangerous job. And so we have, you know, primary trauma exposure mm -hmm. um, in some situations where things will happen when you're in a home. Um, or sometimes even things just happen in our parking lot or in a building. Um, because we're, we're working with families that... Um, are in crisis um, oftentimes or um, just struggling with a number of different things, and that can be dangerous work. But most of the trauma exposure is a secondary trauma exposure. And so, um, as you said, that's that's hearing the stories uh, about the sufferings of, of others, uh, families that you work with, the children, the, the parents, the extended family um, that, are, that um, are all dealing with those issues, whatever those issues may be. And that, that's pretty frequent um, exposure. And, um, you know, and, and trauma has a way of kind of being cumulative, too. And so it, it can be, uh, you know, little things that you hear over a, a pretty long period of time. And then, you know, we kind of, as leaders in, in the field, we kind of look for the big things that happen, right, um, when something, uh, a new case comes in because a child died or um, there's a really bad outcome for a family, we kind of, that hits our radar that, okay, there's someone dealing with something really serious here. We need to check in and, and make mm -hmm. sure they have support and help in working with this family. 
But what we often um, fail to do is recognize that cumulative kind of effect of trauma and, and that it can be the small things or seemingly small things that, you know, somebody missed an appointment. And then that's the thing that the caseworker um, really has a hard time with. But it's it's really about the series of things that have happened. And mm-hmm. so what we've, we really are trying to do is shift towards really being – uh, you know, obviously we have to be responsive to that, but how can we also be preventative, right? And so one of the things that we're we're doing that we started in, in my office and we're trying to um, replicate where we can in other, other uh, parts of the agency is a shield and build strategy. So we try to make it, you know, it's got a rhyme. So we remember. Okay, of course. Right? Or acronyms so, or something. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> but historically kind of what happens is something bad happens on a case and so you shame and blame. It's the oh, case yes. manager's fault. Yeah, it's it's yeah. the supervisor's fault. Like who messed up, right? right? And so instead of taking that approach, we take the shield and build approach. And it's you know we understand that secondary trauma exposure will happen. Mm-hmm. It's part of the job, right? But how? What can we do to shield from the unnecessary exposure, right? And so if I need to consult on a case and I'm having a conversation with twenty case managers, you know. Um, and supervisors and making this team decision, which we try to do because team decisions, all the, you know, the more brains, the better. Right. And so do we have to share all the details, all the ugly details about what happened? Or can we minimize that to just what's necessary so that we're not really um, creating more of that uh, potential secondary trauma? Right. And so um, shield where we can. One of the things um, that we do in South Carolina is respond to child fatalities. So even if it was not a a DSS-involved case, Mm. um, we respond. And sometimes that means we open an investigation. It it goes through the the intake hotline process, and then sometimes an investigation is open. And then that means at some point you're going to be meeting with the coroner, and there's going to be an autopsy review. Um, You know, but being mindful about how many people have to be at that table. Does the case manager, you know... Mm -hmm. um, who's been doing this job for six months and is 24 years old and really inexperienced and still mm-hmm. learning, mm-hmm. do they have to be there? Or can I go and bring back information, whatever the pertinent information is that they need? Um, can I take whatever information they would have shared and can I share that in their place? Um, there are a number of ways that you can shield. Um, and then the building is just being really intentional about ways to build resilience in the team. And so... Um, one of the things that, that I did in, in my last office and then in the current office is build a sort of a sanctuary space. We call the self-care room. Um, it's really important because we, in the current office, we have cubicles, right? And so there's not a place you can just go unless you want to go to the bathroom and cry. It's mm-hmm. not, not <laughs> the best place to cry. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's not a place, that, you know, if you just need a minute to, to collect yourself, to be alone, to think, to process something, um, so now we've we've got a space that's a, a private room where you can mm-hmm. go and do that, and there, we try to make it a very comfortable room. Um, so you know, not fluorescent lighting. Um, we've got lamps, we've got mm-hmm. nice chairs, and um, and then other other things that if you know if you hang it out in there, you might pick up some materials about self care mm-hmm. um, and read through those kinds of things. And so it's it's just about being really intentional um, because we we recognize that we will never get to the level of providing the services that families deserve if we can't 
keep staff mm-hmm. long enough mm-hmm. for them to get good at their job. But they can't stay long enough if they can't stay healthy, if we're not helping mm-hmm. them stay healthy. Exactly. Yeah. So. Now, you've been doing this for some time, too. Is Has some things changed in your agency or in your approach and taking care of yourself? I know it sounds like it's intentional what you do. Has it been there for um, some time? It, so it's... It's been evolving. Evolving. Right? Okay. And so yeah. it's, um, I would say when I first started, I was the, the 24-year-old that had no clue what she was doing and, you know, just out there. And see, I um, want our students to hear this and those that are listening <laughs> in to realize that there, there's the possibilities are out there for the support and the care. Yeah. Because yeah, mm-hmm. a lot of yeah. folks are asking me questions at times. I, part of what my questions come from is the students will ask me, say, well, how do you take care of yourself if you right. have secondary mm-hmm. trauma? Or even if you're just hearing all these stories mm-hmm. constantly of conflict, of, of hurt, of pain, how do you take care of yourself? I, and I think um, that's a really great question. I think one of the, the big things is to accept that it does impact mm-hmm. you, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have to pretend that it that it, you're not bothered, that yes. you're fine, yeah. um, that it comes with the job. It's just part of what we do. Well, it is part of what we do, but it doesn't mean that you're not human mm-hmm. um, and that it, it doesn't bother you to do it. And so, um, you know, if you can't accept that and, and first um, – feel safe enough to mm-hmm. admit that, you're less likely to to accept help, too. Um, we do have, I, I think, probably in the past couple, maybe two or three years, I think we've seen the most progress towards um, really doing a better job of this agency-wide. And so we now have, uh, in the state where I work, we have about 5,000 employees, and we have a trauma, like at our state level, uh, employee trauma support manager who's doing an incredible job just kind of now she's building it from the ground up though because it's a really a new thing um but collecting data um trying to understand our workforce better what the needs are um identifying where there are offices that are doing things well that address self-care and then getting that information out to the rest of the the state so that they might replicate those things and so um you know We've, we've actually, my team's had the opportunity to go and, and do um, multiple, have multiple conversations. I wouldn't necessarily call it trainings, but conversations with other offices so we can talk about what's working for us um, as we're still trying to figure it out. Um, and then we have, which I think is incredible, um, which we didn't have when I was uh, in the field as an investigator, we have now a trauma support team. So about 15 people who are already, you know, employed in different roles in the agency, but volunteer to serve, um, to be deployed for other things. So it's a crisis Mm -hmm. sort of intervention uh, for employees. And so, um, you know, we had, I'm trying to think about what's been in the news, so it's not information that's confidential, but, um, you know, there was a a bomb at a, a DSS building and um, you know, nothing, it didn't, you know, explode. Nobody's hurt, but still there's, there's some trauma there's that trauma. comes with, you know, that, sure. I, you know, that was my, uh, you know, mm-hmm. and it's not just that office. It's, it's anybody in any office that now is thinking, well, that could have happened here in my office mm-hmm. too, um, or weapons being carried into the building and that kind of thing. And so, um, if something, it, it could be something like that. It could be something like, a um, a bad outcome that happened uh, with a family that, that someone's working with. And we might be deployed as a team member to go and help that employee um, sort of triage that um, and process that. And we, you know, 
we have uh, counselors that are employed with the agency, and some of them are, are members of that team. And so often um, there'll be ones that, that respond as well. And then, you know, we kind of, uh, you know, like I said, that's sort of the triage. And then um, in my office, we also have someone that comes every week that's just there, okay. that's available for someone to come talk to, anybody. Um, they don't even have to be in child welfare. They can be in economic services or mm-hmm. adult advocacy or any any other program and um, just come and talk. And often what they will talk with her about is even personal stuff. It's not necessarily job-related, but that all helps with, I mean, that's all our junk that we bring with us, you know, that anybody brings to mm-hmm. any job you do, right, um, just to kind of help process that. But beyond that, um, then we we help make referrals, connections to vocational rehabilitation for ongoing counseling as well. Well, I really think that um, Child Protective Services, um, there's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of um, misunderstanding. There's a lot of myths, kind of, if you will. Um, But I know in some of our conversations, it really has come to my um, awareness around how you guys really are first responders in a lot of way. And, And you're first responders in a way that, you know, when police are first responders, they have ways to protect themselves. Um, when fire, you know, is coming to a house, they have the hoses, <laughs> you know, like they, they have these things. And when you guys are, are going to respond to try to protect children, um, you know, I mean, like you just have such a different role. And yet I think the risks are still really, really there. And so it just it makes me think about what we're doing even um, in the mental health field around supporting um, wellness for this other kind of area of first responders. That's absolutely needed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I mean, I think there's to an extent you kind of try to, especially when I was younger, right. You try to ignore the mm-hmm. the danger that comes with that and kind of have this, this feeling like everybody wants mm-hmm. your help. And so um, it's all going to be fine and you'll be okay. But, you know, at the end of the day, you're, you, you know, we we don't have the hose and we don't have um, mm-hmm. the weapons or any other self-protection. Now we can. Um, law enforcement will go with us um, and accompany us on cases if asked um, in most of our, our um, jurisdictions, uh, particularly at night because we never close. Mm-hmm. I mean, so we, mm-hmm. we have um, child protective services and adult protective services uh, every day, 24 hours a day. Um, so particularly at night, you you know, you can go with a partner uh, another case manager, you mm-hmm. could go with law enforcement um, just for extra security. We try to collect that information when we take uh, the hotline, does the, the new reports. Um, what are the other dangers that we need to know about? You know, are there aggressive dogs? Are there weapons? Is there gang mm-hmm. involvement? Yes. Things like that. Um, so there are things that you can do to be safer. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, I mean, it's, it's your um, your communication skills, how you talk with a family. Um, your words, you know, that's, that's really what you have to help keep yourself safe. And it, it, that can be very effective, um, being able to skillfully help someone deescalate. I mean, you're knocking on somebody's door, telling them some things that they really don't want to hear. Um, and so there's a way that you can do that. Mm -hmm. That's better for everybody. Yeah. That's so, so important that you get that from your experience and from your training to be able to be able to do that. Because uh, mm-hmm. that is very valuable. Terry, I keep th- hearing about the, the value of having a team, about how your agency has structured the support for you when you're dealing and others are dealing with secondary trauma. Um, you don't feel you're so much alone, it sounds like. Um, I wonder what you 
gain from doing this? What is it something that gives you value and meaning in what you do? Um, so I, I, it is very rewarding for me uh-huh. um, to see those good outcomes for children and for families and yes. to see that, um, you know, we're not, we're not striving for life to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Our own lives are not perfect, right? <clears throat> what we are working for is to help families be stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, and to help help them in their process for healing. Um, what we really like to see is that we don't meet a family again after we've worked mm-hmm. with them. That's the yes. last time we that they need our help, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that can come in a lot of different ways. Um, uh, you know, the most successful, I think, is where we see um, the extended family step in and, and become a support network for them in a different mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Um, not that they weren't there before. Sometimes they had no idea that things were going on yes. um, that they needed help with. And so um, so it, it, it really, I'm really driven by seeing those good outcomes and knowing that um, it is really important for, uh, for those individual families, but also for community, mm-hmm. for our society, that we do a better job of taking care of each other. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that what strikes me in any conversation with you is you know, your commitment to the children, but it's really your compassion for the full system. And I think with um, childhood abuse and neglect, so many times we focus on the harm done to the child, which mm-hmm. we should, mm-hmm. but we really don't focus enough on, like you said at the very beginning, these are families in crisis. Um, and to remove the stigma, the demonizing, um, villainizing, these are horrible people doing horrible things, um, to have an approach that still holds adults responsible for their behaviors and yet sees them as being worthy of getting support and help. Um, and to me, that really comes through when I have conversations with you about your ability to do this work um, from a real place of compassion. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm guessing that some cases are easier to do that than others. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> um, but absolutely. I'm wondering, you know, if you have practices behind how to help you kind of try to stay in that that place of compassion. Um, so I think for me, one thing that that I've always found helpful was make the assumption. And, you know, we, we always talk about don't make assumptions about yes. families, right? <laughs> um, you know, we even have rules for our our um, case consultation, that's one of my rules. Like, we don't make assumptions. But this, So this one gets a, a pass. Mm-hmm. So when I'm working with, um, particularly with parents that have done things, um, they're really horrendous, like things that, um, that do keep you awake at night and, um, you know, cause permanent damage, right? It's, so I've sort of had the practice of assuming that, um, you know, they're not just an evil person person, right? This is a a human being that probably as a child had some trauma um, or some other things happened to them and they didn't get the help they needed, right? And they didn't have someone there um, supporting their family and and helping in that role. So it's easier then to to remain non-judgmental when you're working with them. And, you know, even if it's not true, who does it hurt to make that assumption, right? If, If that helps us to be kind, be respectful, while still holding someone accountable and helping them work through their issues. And so, I, you know, I've I've worked um, just a few child torture cases that were very difficult for me. And I think if I didn't um, practice with that assumption, then I would not have been able to work with that family. Even you know, even with folks that have been doing the work for a while, we we 
tend to focus on the children so much that, that it's often a uh, misunderstanding that the child is our client and they are our client, but the family is our client. So even, you know, even the parent that did the really bad thing that we don't want to talk about, he is also our client. She is also our client. And so um, they're all very important parts of that family. And, you know, the ultimate goal is that, you know, when we're through and we close this case, there's not a repeat maltreatment to the child. And to get there, we have to really understand how it got, how we got to the point where there was the first maltreatment mm-hmm. to begin with. Okay. Right. So it's not just about a parent getting sober. It's mm-hmm. about why did they use to start with um, so that we can, yeah. you know, better understand how we how we help them get through to a better place and stay there. And I really I think that's the thing I I, I hope the most that our listeners will take away is this um, this like kind of stronger conceptualization of who CPS, DSS, the different terms we have in different states, that it's really not about this enforcement agency that has some power, right, that's coming in to, you know, sweep in and take the kids away and be this rescuer that the families don't want because the family sees them as evil. I mean, it really is this organization that has designed to be helpers um, and to see the help that everybody in the system needs. And I think that if we had that, I think that as a, as a community, we would all be better supporters of, of our various child welfare organizations, for sure. I agree. I agree. And I think, um, I think if folks knew that before, you know, folks were possibly interested in coming to do this work, if they knew that that's the approach, it's not, you know, I'm not out here saving children. That's not my job to wear a cape and save kids, right? Um but that's sort of the, when we talk about it, that's like kind of how we tend to, to, to view ourselves. And, and, you know, if that's why we're coming to it, I think it, it's, um, you can get disillusioned very quickly, right? Because it's, you know, it may be about that, but it's really about helping the whole family. And that's how we best help children. Mm-hmm. So it's sometimes a little different than what we expect. It makes a lot of sense to me. It is. That's so helpful to hear too. Is that just uh, the, the, as I just hear as you you both are talking about this about how expansive it is, and it's not just such a narrow thing like we're here to protect the child, which we are, mm-hmm. but also that it's engaging and involving the family. It's involving um, the extended family in such a ways to find support, and that's where some health and wholeness and wellness occur as we move forward. And it makes sense to me. Like I can remember back when I worked in one of my first internships was yeah. with a um, with a group home. And I can remember that the kids there and it just stood out to me because it was such a surprise to me, you know, that no matter the circumstances that they were there in the home and why they had been mm-hmm. taken away from their families or had, had to leave their families, um, for most of them, their biggest desire was to be back with their family or to, to, to want to have a relationship with that parent. It didn't matter how much better something may have been with somebody else like that, that, um, that bond, the attachment bond right. um, that you have with that primary person. I mean, that is where so many times the heart kind of remains. And so trying to find ways to help mm-hmm. children, you know, or help families get healthier so that children can be safe in those homes. Because many times that's, it's, you know, even if they can go to a home that offers lots of other things, that desire to still have that relationship can stay super duper strong. Right. Absolutely. And, um, you know, we know that we've seen it happen time and time again, even, um, you know, even when, you know, the worst case scenario where a child can't be reunified and um, a parent's rights are terminated and it ends in an adoption. Um, 
even even when they love their adoptive family and they thrive there um, and everything is great, they still come back and, and most of the time seek out their biological family to, for that connection. It's mm-hmm. a very important connection. And we have a you know the the privilege of working w- with a family in a way that we can make that a safer, healthier connection to maintain. I just think it's beautiful, and I'm so glad mm-hmm. that we have alumni like you that are serving in those positions. And I think it's important for people who are even thinking about going into the health and human service field to know that there's work out there to be done. It's not dr- even you know, necessarily direct counseling type roles, whether it's investigators or it's administrators. We need people who are strong and appreciate the research and the mm-hmm. practice um, of strong relationships. And so I think that um, you know our our program is prepared to. Um, offer lots of different opportunities of learning for mm-hmm. students with a variety of career interests. Yeah, and, and Terry certainly is one of our valued alumni and just had been such a wonderful student, too, I remember. And um, that's helpful for all of those who are listening to know that there's a variety of opportunities to be engaged and involved in health and human services and helping professions, and that's really what we're committed to. And you hear one today, as Terry has so eloquently and aptly described her area of uh, work, influence, profession. And you just hear um, the, um, the interest she has, the uh, dedication that's there. So, Terry, I just appreciate you being with us so much today and sharing what you do and sharing this area of, of helping that folks will need to hear about. And particularly how what's in place, too, for your own sense of of wellness and the way that you and your agency has developed a way to take care of yourself. That's something that really impresses me now that I'm hearing about that I think is so valuable. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm very, very appreciative of the opportunity. I, well, good. I, um, you know, it's an honor to do what I do and, and uh, love doing it and really love talking about it. So I appreciate the invitation. <laughs> Absolutely. We're glad you're with us. Um, any parting final words? Thought, you, final thoughts and final words thought. of wisdom of whatever it is <laughs> yeah. that you'd like to say. Anything left undone or anything we, we um, need to know about? So, I, I, well, I probably a million things, right? But sure. um, I think one of the, the big things that, that's come up quite a bit lately is just that we are we are still learning, right? And when right, when you, you know better, you do better, mm-hmm. right? And so we're, we're trying um, to learn as much as we can. We're working on continual quality improvement. And so that's where I think our partnerships with, um, you know, child welfare is not just DSS, it's an entire system. And so partnerships with others that have resources that can come alongside us and help us with those efforts to to do better mm-hmm. are really critical. You know, we have strong, in, in the office where I work, strong partnerships um, with our foster parent association, for instance. And so um, working together, mm-hmm. uh, we all have the same goal, right? So working together is um, really, I think, what's going to help us all be successful. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to, to all, all the progress that, uh, that I've seen, even within my own agency, but also, um, you know, with the partner agencies and the other stakeholders to, you know, when you win, we all win, mm-hmm. right? And so um, I think... Folks who are looking at uh, child welfare as a profession or just any, you know, human services, there's so many different things that you can do in human services. Um, I think wherever you land, if you keep that in mind, that we, you know, we're successful when we're all in Mm -hmm. it together and helping each other. Terry, thank you for being with us. Thank you. We are all in it together. 
So that's uh, some good parting words for us. Today.